Hey, good morning, Trinity. So, um, in the fourth century, before Christ was born, about the time of Israel's last prophet, uh, which would have been Malachi or Joel, Aristotle was born in Greece. Now, he would have been one of their greatest thinkers. To this day, we still use his work as a primer for our political theory classes, right? In his politics, he has a conversation about the best kinds of governments. And he noted that there's basically three kinds of um, government. You have a monarchy, right, which is uh, the rule of one person, a king or queen. You have uh, an oligarchy, which is rule of a few, uh, namely the wealthy class. And then you have democracy, which is the rule of the people. And he makes a few observations that are really interesting. First, he uh, does not believe necessarily that democracy is the best form of government. He observes that monarchy or oligarchy are superior forms of government because they are composed of people who have time to pursue virtue. Democracies, on the other hand, are composed of a mixture of people with a mixture of needs, all with very little time on their hands to consider the importance of virtue, right? Nevertheless, Aristotle conceded that a democracy is, um, is what is best suited to protect against tyranny, but because democracies disperse control of power, they also forfeit the ability to work quickly and decisively on behalf of those who really need it, right? There's a lot of red tape bureaucracy, as you can imagine. You know this. So one of Aristotle's most interesting observations is that from his perspective, the best form of government in an ideal world would be to have a benevolent king. A benevolent king can act quickly and powerfully, which is great, especially if he's good and trustworthy. Now, at the time that Aristotle is recording these ideas about the nature of a good and virtuous king, Israel had already been thinking about this for over a thousand years, right? Israel was way ahead of its time, mostly because they knew what was at stake. Now remember, we are in a series of uh, sermons called The Forgotten Torah. So we studied Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And one way of understanding Deuteronomy is that it is a series of farewell speeches by Moses to his people as they are about to enter into the promised land. So Moses is giving his people a few final instructions on how to live when they return home. And in our passage this morning, Moses anticipates that when they get into the land, Israel will get a king. And when they do, their king must be a different kind of king. Now, you might be asking, fairly, what could an ancient discussion on the rules for Jewish kings have to do with a modern person? I mean, we don't live in a kingdom. Who cares? So let me suggest to you, this is perhaps the most relevant discussion for modern people. And I'm not talking about, um, uh, here's what I'm trying to say is we're still being ruled. We're still being ruled. And I'm not talking about like a, a president or Congress. And your governing authority shapes you in ways you don't even quite perceive or understand. See, your governing authority, without your vote, without your democratic vote, tells you if you measure up. Your authority is what gives you the grid or system against which we measure some of life's most important questions, like, am I good enough? 
Does my life matter? Your authority is what shapes your reference point for your own self-understanding. So why study ancient rules for Jewish kings that was written 3,500 years ago? It's because we're still being ruled. And who we understand our king to be matters. So this text is going to give us an occasion to peek under the surface just a little bit. So as we study this passage, we're going we're gonna to study these two questions. Why do we need a king? And why do we need Jesus as a king? So with that intro, let's turn our attention to our text. If you will stand with me, and let's give our attention to Deuteronomy chapter 17, starting in verse 14. Hear now the word of God. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a, set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother, only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall, he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive, excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read, it, read in it all the days of his life, and he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. The grass withers, the flower fades, but these words will endure forever. May he bless it for you and for me. You may be seated. All right, that's our text. In describing how the king should behave, Moses is giving us something more than what we can kind of detect at first glance. He's telling us about our need for a king. Now, our initial question of why do we need a king is, is pretty intuitive at first, right? When you're in an emergency, you need a person who has both power and authority to act on your behalf. If they have power but no authority, then you're stuck, right? They're, they're, their hands are tied. If they have authority but no power, then that's sweet and sentimental, but you're still stuck, right? So a king, by definition, is an agent that has both power and authority in a given realm. And so having a good king who advocates for you could be a great setup. But as we are going to see in this text, there's something more that a king does for his subjects. And let me explain this using my story just a little bit. I grew up in a Catholic home. Your average Catholic is certain about one thing. Uh, Jesus died a bloody death because you messed up, right? And we all feel really guilty about it. I know, that was my life. I was reminded of this every Sunday when I went to Mass and saw Jesus hanging on a cross. Catholics uh, really like crucifixes, right? And here's what I understood. It was very clear. Jesus died. He took away my sin. And that basically means that I'm at zero or neutral position with God. I, I get a new start, 
I get a new start, but now I have to do a lot of good works. I have to build my resume. I have to measure up so that I can get enough credit to earn God's approval. Now, here's what I didn't have with God. Although I believe that Jesus died on a cross, I didn't have definitive and certain validation. And validation is what I desperately needed. In fact, all humans need validation. All the sociologists will tell you that humans, we can't live without validation. Interestingly, this logic is how come Moses knew that Israel would appoint a king. And this is how come he begins there in verse 14. He says, when you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, just like all the nations that are around me. There is a universal impulse to get a king. And why is this a case? It's because there is a universal need for validation. Now follow this with me. How, how do we get validation? Well, for traditional cultures, we believe that there is this sacred order or a moral law or a universal set of virtues, right, that exist out there. And so that we must align ourselves or we change ourselves, accommodate ourselves to meet that standard. And if we do it, we receive validation. Our leaders or those who, whose, whose approval we seek are the ones that we set over us. And they're the ones who, affor- who affirm us and tell us that we live up to the standard. Those are the voices who govern us, functional kings. We live in their realms and by their orthodoxies. Now, modern cultures, they do the same thing, but they kind of hide this reality. Instead of agreeing to the premise that there is some sacred order out there in which we must align ourselves to, many modern people say, hey, listen, there's no transcendent or sacred order to the universe. Instead, your own impulses, your desires are the standard. You are your own sacred order. You need to be true to yourself. Don't change or align yourself to some orthodoxy out there. Do the opposite. Indulge. If you are brave enough to be true to yourself, then you will become your own validator. You're your own authority. You have set yourself as the king. Now, both traditional and modern cultures have problems, and the Bible critiques both. But modern ideas of self-validation are more pervasive today. The idea that we can look inside of ourselves to find out who we truly are is incredibly naive. Why? Because, there, because we are always changing. Who I truly am in this moment is different than who I truly am in five minutes. Worse than that, worse than that, when I look inside myself, I see competing and even contradictory things. Like I mentioned last week, right? I want to be fit, but I also want to eat the American classic chocolate cake from Costco, right? Both are authentically me. I am both contradictory things at the same time. But when a modern person looks inside themselves to presumably discover who they are, whatever it is we think we are finding in ourselves is really, wait for it, just a product of the culture. 
Tim Keller, he gives us this anecdote in his preaching book, and this is particularly relevant uh, for the validation that our society seeks through sexual self-understanding, which is a hot topic. He says, he says imagine a guy, a, a pagan, Anglo-Saxon, from a warrior and honor culture, walking down uh, the streets of London, but a thousand years ago. He looks inside of his heart, and he sees two feelings. One feeling is that he just loves killing people. He has an inordinate aggression against people who cross him. And the other feeling is that, he, that he looks, when he looks inside, he's, he finds that he has, there's same-sex attraction. Right? So what's he going to do? Well, he evaluates these two feelings situated in an honor and warrior culture, and he looks at the feeling to kill, and he says, hey, that's, that's me. That's who I am, right? Meanwhile, in that same culture, he's going to see the same-sex attraction. He's going to say, that, that's not me. That's something, but that's not me. I need to suppress that. But today, imagine that same man's walking down the streets of London uh, in this modern time. He looks in his heart. He sees the same two feelings. He has this explosive and inordinate aggression when people cross him, and he has same-sex attraction. But this time, in this modern culture, he will see that instinct to kill, and he'll say, that's something, but that's not me. I'm going to get therapy, counseling, anger management. But with the same-sex attraction, this time he says, that's me. That's who is authentically me. Now, what's the difference Is this guy looking inside his heart and figuring out who he is? No. He's he's looking into his heart using a certain grid to determine who he is. He keeps certain things and he throws out others. But where does that grid come from? That grid for understanding and interpreting himself is his culture. His culture is the authority. The culture is the king. The culture is the validator, you see. So what's the point? You will set a king over you. Whether you come from traditional or modern culture, you will, you will let something be your authority. You will set a king over you. And which king will it be? You need a king. You need validation desperately, something to answer, who am I? Does my life matter? Am I loved? You can't live without it. This is a human need. You need some voice that tells you that you measure up. You need someone, an authority, a king whose approval matters, that says your resume is good enough. It's good enough. Now, do I have your attention? So far, I've tried to make the case that that you need a good king because you will set a king over you so your king's character matters. Now, let's get deeper into this passage because now we're going to see why we need Jesus as a king. Have you ever um, been walking and you spot someone in the distance coming your way and it appears that that person's like waving at you and you kind of wave back, but you realize they're, they're looking beyond you to the person behind you, right? So one time I was going to Mexico I was supposed to get picked up from the airport uh, by one of my second cousins. I knew her, but I didn't, I didn't know her really. I couldn't quite remember what she looked like. It had been like, you know, 20 years. So as I'm coming down the escalator, this, this, there's this pretty woman, right? And she's waving at me, mouthing words at me. 
And I thought that was her, right? So she seemed super affectionate. And I thought, all right, we're just going to go in for the, the old long-lost cousin hug, right? And uh, it was, I mean, it must have been about 10 feet away when I realized she is not communicating with me. She's signing at her husband or boyfriend behind me. Super awkward. Uh, can I suggest to you, that's what's happening in this text. Moses is talking to the people, and it's true. He's addressing their future king. But my goodness, he is looking at someone way beyond them, behind them, a future king. So let me explain how Israel understood their king. In ancient cultures, a king and the God were the same person. I just think about Pharaoh. He wasn't just the leader, right, in Egypt. He was divine. And an ancient king uh, often arrived by his own appointing. Usually it was through a military coup, and usually it was at the expense of his enemies and his subjects. But in Israel, that's not how things are done. In Israel, the king is not supposed to be the man. He's supposed to be the ideal human. He's not the country's deity. He is, in fact, fully and perfectly submitted to God. So how do they find this guy? Well, Moses says in verse 15, he says, You may indeed set a king over you who the Lord your God will choose. So no self-appointing, no coups going on. And this king must have a different vision of power. One commentator, Daniel Block, says most kings use their authority to satisfy their lust for power, status, and wealth but not the king of Israel, right? So in verse 16, it says, look there with me, it says, he must not acquire many horses for himself. That's just, that is referencing a king's military might. His authority is not for personal imperial conquest. He is not to amass power. And then in verse 17, he says that the king shall not acquire many wives for himself. Now, this is not just sexual gratification. This is about making alliances with other countries to improve the king's own status. And then the second part there, verse 17, look there. It says, it also prohibits the king from amassing excessive silver and gold. Now, the office of the king is not about getting rich off the backs of his people. It's about serving them. You guys, this text was revolutionary in that context. It might sound obvious to you, this is revolutionary. This king thinks about power, status, and wealth in categorically different ways. And then to top it off, the law is given to this king. This king is not the legislator. He is supposed to walk around with the Torah as if it were written on his heart, Look at verse 18. It says, the king is supposed to write for himself in a book, a copy of this law. And then in verse 19, it says, it shall be with him and he'll read it all the days of his life, keeping all the words of this law and doing them, right? So this king, he does not say might makes right. Nope. And he doesn't go all judge dread on them. I am the law. Nope. Doesn't do that either. This king was to be perfectly under God's law. Now, Moses is looking at Israel, but he's looking beyond them. He knows that no human king will ever truly be a benevolent king. None can perfectly give his people the flourishing that they need. And because of the sin of the world and the sin that reigned in the heart of Israel's kings, God himself would have to become their king. That's the story of the whole Bible, you guys. You could literally sum up the story of the Bible in that line. 
Now, here's what I want you to understand. At the time of Jesus, there was this huge messianic expectation. That means that Israel was without their own ruler waiting for the promised king, a king who would live up to Deuteronomy chapter 17, who would come and rescue them from the oppression of the Romans. Listen, every Jew knew that the welfare of the people was tied to the character of the king. That's what got Israel into this mess in the first place. All the kings of Israel were awful, and everyone suffered. And so the Lord dethroned all of them. And so the Jews were without this ideal king, this ideal human to lead them. And then Jesus appears, right? And he starts fulfilling dozens of prophecies that are well beyond his control. Like he was born in Bethlehem as it was predicted of their king. You can control a lot of things, but you can't control what city you were born in, right? And then at his baptism, a voice, the voice of God echoing from the heavens, heavens chooses and anoints him. And it says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. In other words, This is your king. And then Jesus' ministry. It's all characterized by radically different vision of power. Power, status, wealth are turned upside down. He says things like, hey, you want to find your life? You've got to lose it. He says the son of man didn't come to be served, but to serve. He embodied all. All that Deuteronomy 17 envisioned for a king. Now listen, just think about this with me for just a moment. Jesus, who was with his father for all eternity past, a place of perfection with no death and disease or curse, with all the power, status, and eternal wealth in the chambers of heaven, he left all of it to come to us He looked at our interests, not his own. That's how come Paul would say, he would say, although he, Jesus, was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But the king emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, a king who gave up power, status, wealth. He humbled himself by becoming obedient. He perfectly fulfilled the law, every jot and tittle, to the very finest details, to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus was most certainly the promised king. Everyone knew it, but they hated it. Oh, they gave him a crown. They adorned his head with a crown, not of gold, but of thorns. And they nailed him to a cross. And then they nailed a sign over his head that read what? King of the Jews. The people mocked him. They preferred to set a different king over themselves. And guess the words that would come out of his mouth as he hung there. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. See, when they rejected Jesus as king... They were not free. They were simply setting a different king with different values, different orthodoxies over themselves. But what king do they want? Remember, the welfare of the people is tied to the character of the king. 
Your welfare is tied to your king. Your king's choices matter. So who's your king? Who have you given authority to? Whose orthodoxy tells you if you're living your life right? Who is your ultimate validator? Who says your life measures up? If your ultimate validator is your dad or your mom, what happens when sin runs its course and they wound you emotionally or leave you or you don't you don't achieve their validation or their live up to their expectations if your validator is your spouse i mean what what happens when they die in the words of martin lloyd jones how good is your validator when he or she is in the coffin if you are your own validator what happens when you don't live up to your own expectations or what happens when you do You'll either hate yourself or you'll look down at those people who don't live up to your validation markers or don't agree with your self-established orthodoxies. Here's my point. Every program for validation, whether traditional or modern, the validation that you and I desperately need, validation that says, I matter, I am accepted, I am loved, All of them will fail you miserably. They are sorry kings. And your welfare is tied to them, you see. Listen closely. Because if what I'm about to say is is confusing to you, just keep coming back. Because this is what we talk about every Sunday at Trinity. This is what runs through our veins. Jesus Christ. Christ is not a last name, right? It's a title, right? Jesus is the anointed one, the chosen one, the king. Jesus Christ perfectly fulfilled the office of the king. And this king, who knew no sin, who never sinned, became sin. And it's not just our sin, but the curse of the whole world fell on him as he hung on a cross. But then on the third day, he was resurrected. He ascended to the right hand of the Father. That's that's just fancy talk for saying that Jesus assumed authority, right? That he took his throne. The world's rightful king reigns. But let me tell you why this authority is so radically different. What we have here isn't traditional culture whose authority comes from outside expectations that say, buckle your bootstraps to see if you measure up. And and, and neither is this like modern culture that says your authority comes from your own standards. But even still, you got to perform to see if you measure up, to see if you're good enough. Both scenarios are about performance with Christ. As your king and authority, we have one who lived up perfectly. He measured up. And although he measured up, he took on our sin so that in him, in the king, we might become the righteousness of God. We get his righteous standing. That is 
complete validation that says, you're enough. You're enough. Not, not because we're righteous in ourselves, but because Christ performed on our behalf. And now nothing can change what Christ has done. Do you know what this means? The validation that your heart desperately needs is not achieved. It's received. It can't be taken away. Jesus, the ideal king, the ideal human, he measures up. And God looks at him and is pleased. And your welfare is tied to your king. And so God looks at you. and He's so pleased. He's so pleased. Even as the father loved the son, so I have loved you, says Jesus. Man, I wish I could just look you all in the eyes and just tell you that, that your father's pleased with you. Give yourself a break. He's pleased with you. If you believed that, if you understood that your welfare is tied to this one whose voice has preeminency in your heart, it would change your life. Man, you would be free. You'd be free to fail. You'd be free to repent. You'd be free to laugh at yourself. You'd be free to work hard and excellently for some bigger cause than your own self-gratification. You'd be free. And what if your children grew up in that freedom? Can you see why Deuteronomy 17 is so relevant for modern people? 3,500 years ago, they're writing about the king. It still matters. May God bless his word. Amen.